The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. This morning we are returning to our series of messages in the great book of Colossians. So please turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and you will remember that Paul has been stressing throughout this book that believers are complete in Christ. Uh, In chapter 1, he focuses on the supremacy and the sufficiency of of Christ. And the clear implication is that if believers will understand who Christ is and what he has done, much of the Christian life will fall into place. In chapter 2, we saw him give warnings against different types of false teachings that were being brought into the church at Colossae. And he warns against them as being out of accord with the truth of the supremacy of Christ and the lordship of Christ and especially the sufficiency of Christ. The glorious truth, church, is that we have everything we need as believers in Christ. Amen? Everything we need for life and godliness we find in Christ. And then beginning in chapter 3, he begins to apply the truth of Christ's supremacy and sufficiency and the truth of God's gospel of grace to the practical issues of Christian living. Now, last time we looked at verses 1 through 8, and we saw the apostle apply that truth to the sphere of our own personal walk of faith, how we are as Christians, how we live as Christians, how we relate to God and how we relate to others. Now, this week in verses 9 through 17, the apostle is going to apply that truth to our lives together in the local congregation. And this is very important. Now, this morning we are going to focus on verses 9 through 13, but let's let's begin reading in verse 5 and go all the way through to verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord, Colossians 3, verse 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we know that the most indispensable requirement for rightly understanding your word is an understanding of our own sin. Your word sheds its light on our lives and reveals to us those places which are out of accord with your image and which are out of accord with your will for our lives. And it shows us the way of salvation and it shows us the way of of the conquest of sin. And if we come to your word thinking we don't need forgiveness of sins, we might as well be looking at blank sheets of paper. But when we come by the grace of the Holy Spirit, realizing that we are poor sinners and we're in need of forgiveness and of instruction, then we open your word and we find in it a fount of blessing. So by your spirit, make this book a blessing and make us all, both hearers and doers of your word, and we give you the praise and the glory, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, what does it mean to live under the rule of Christ? What does that mean? What does it mean as a Christian to acknowledge the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ in our lives? Well, the Colossian false teachers certainly had their own ideas about this. They said, oh, we can offer you a fullness of experience that, that you've never had before. And those things included mystical experiences, special revelations, certain ritual practices, uh, legalistic uh, rules and regulations. And really, for all of this, only a few exclusive people could, could, could follow it and find fullness uh, Therein, But the Apostle Paul defines what it means to live under the rule of Christ, what it means to have fullness in Christ in a very different way. Throughout this passage, he is telling us what it means to live under the rule of Christ. And over and over again in each section, in verses 1 through 8, and then 9 through 17, and then 18 through 22, and then verse 23 through verse 1 of chapter 4, over and over he stresses two things. To live under the rule of Christ means, first of all, to be made a new person in Christ. To be made a new person in Christ. To be made a new creation by being united to Christ through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing that it means to live under the rule of Christ. To be united to him. And therefore to have been made a new creation. And he stresses this in, in verses 1 through 8. Secondly, it means to stop our old patterns of living, old patterns of thinking and of behaving, those patterns which were not in accord with Christ and which were not in accord with the Word of God, those patterns which, in fact, were, were self-destructive, 
and dishonoring to God. To live under the rule of Christ means to put those off, to lay them aside, and to walk in newness of life, to live in a godly way, to put off and put on, as the Apostle Paul says. So, again, to live under the rule of Christ means, first, to be a new creation, because we're united to Christ. And secondly, it means putting off sin and putting on righteousness. That's how Paul summarizes what it means to live under the rule of Christ, and not just here in Colossians, but really in almost all of his epistles. Now, today we are going to see him apply these two principles to the area of our relationship within the church, our relationship within this congregation. Remember, the Apostle Paul was writing to a local church in Colossae, and in verses 9 through 17, he is concerned that we live out what it means to be under the rule of Christ in the way that we relate to one another. We find the phrase one another throughout this passage. Now, before we look at that, let me say that there are two mistakes um, on the market, so to speak, in contemporary Christian life in America with regard to what it means to be a Christian and what it means to live under, under grace as we live under the rule of Christ. Two mistakes, and they're sort of at the opposite end of the spectrum, two extremes. On the one hand, there is the mistake of moralism. Moralism basically mistakes the message of be good, be kind, be just, do this, do that, for the message of Christianity. Or a little bit more forcefully, it says, if you will be good or if you will do this, God will bless you. Now, the problem with that message is, of course, is that it doesn't uh, tell you how to be good. And it really mistakes the order of things. Because until God works in us, we are incapable of being good. Amen? We are incapable of doing good, of doing righteousness, of doing justice. We are incapable of being loving people. The gospel says the first step in our Christian faith is recognizing that we are incapable of being good on our own. So when people come ministering with a supposedly Christian message that says, be good or do good, and they say nothing of the cross, nothing of atonement, nothing of grace, and they do not explain that goodness follows the work of Christ in you, then they've changed the gospel, and it's no gospel at all. They have, in fact, forgotten grace. That's what all moralists ultimately do. And that's what all moralistic preaching. And, you know, you could walk into any number of, of Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches and hear uh, moral preaching. And it sounds good, but it's not. It's not. Now, am I saying we're not to be moral people? No, of course not. Uh but a message of do this, do that, be this, be that, do more, uh, that is not rooted in the gospel of grace and that is not rooted in the work of Christ in our lives, uh, that's not a Christian message. Ultimately, that's not a biblical message. And I, I would have to say that that for a long time at, 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 
you know, at the beginning of my preaching ministry, I preached like that. You know, there, there was a lot more in my messages uh, about what we need to do and should be doing than about what Christ has done. And as has often been said, uh, the message of Christianity is not do. The message of Christianity is done. Amen? It's done. Christ has done for us what we could not and cannot do for ourselves. But there's another mistake on the market. It's at the opposite end of the spectrum from moralism. I, I, libertinism, I guess we could call it. Maybe license. I don't know. What, what libertinism does is celebrate freedom in Christ, but without ever wanting to talk about obedience or duty. In fact, those two words, duty and obedience, are unwelcome words to those who are the trumpeters of this kind of so-called freedom. Libertinism basically says, I am free in Christ. I have a wonderful relationship with Christ, and that means I don't have to do anything now except what I want to do. So don't give me a list of do's and don'ts. Don't tell me to do this and do that. Don't tell me to be obedient. Don't tell me about my duty, because that's not what Christianity is about. So the first group, the moralists, they forget grace. The second group, the libertines, they misunderstand grace and they abuse grace because they think that freedom is freedom from obedience instead of freedom unto obedience. But as one wise Christian leader has explained, and as I have often quoted over the last 25 years, freedom in Christ is not the right to do what we want. Freedom in Christ is the power to do as we ought. Amen? Before we were in Christ, we had no freedom to obey. We were slaves of sin and of Satan. But when God set us free through the atoning work of Christ on his cross, when God set us free, he set us free to now live as we ought. The freedom which Christ brings frees us from condemnation and it frees us from the frustration of attempting to obey when we do not have the resources to do it on our own. But it also, the freedom that Christ brings, frees us to be what God intended us to be in the first place. And what God intended us to be was the reflection of his very image in righteousness and holiness and knowledge. God intended us to reflect who he is. And if we're going to reflect who he is, then we must reflect his character. And so we must be careful to guard against both of these extremes in our thinking and in our teaching and in our preaching. The idea on the one hand to simply call people to be good or to be kind or to do, and we can fill in the blank. That's not the gospel. And on the other hand, the idea that Christianity is not about obedience, about duty, about do's and don'ts. The idea that Christianity has nothing to do with those things. But it does have something to do with those things, because if that's the case, then we're going to have to rip a lot of Paul's letters out of our Bibles. Because in almost every letter he writes, he spends a good deal of the time telling us what to do and what not to do. Now, does that undercut his doctrine of grace? Not at all. Paul himself tells us in Romans 5 that grace reigns through righteousness. Righteousness, righteous living. I'm not talking about the imputed righteousness, the righteous standing we have before God, but the outworking of that righteousness in our lives. Righteous living doesn't constrain freedom. 
Righteousness, righteous living, is the fruit of our freedom. It's the evidence of our freedom. It's the blessing of our freedom. Now, having said all that, look at what Paul does with his teaching in our passage about what it means to be living under the rule of Christ today. Two things. This passage outlines very easily, verses 9 through 11 constitute one section. That section deals with speech. We could summarize Paul's teaching there into two words, don't lie. Don't lie. Now it's more than that, and the implications of that are are tremendous in, in terms of congregational life, but don't lie. Then verses 12 through 17 give us the second half of the passage. We could summarize that section in two words, put on. Put on. Don't lie. Put on. And let's look at, at, at this together now. And again, uh, we're not going to look at the entire passage today. We'll go through about verse 13, and then we'll, we'll finish it up the next time we return to Colossians. First of all, a Christian's speech must reflect his profession. In verse 9, Paul simply commands, do not lie to one another. Now, we ought not to lie to anybody, but he doesn't mean one another there in the, in the terms of general humanity. He's talking to Christians, and as Christians, and as Christians in a body of believers, in fellowship, in a local church, we must not lie to one another. Paul's concern here is church unity. Believers must make sure that their speech does not undercut church unity. And although the word unity does not itself appear in this passage, the idea is very much present. And it's easy to see that Paul is very concerned here in these verses, that church unity be realized and experienced in the life of this local congregation in Colossae, and therefore also in the life of this local congregation here in Massapequa, and in every local assembly of the truly redeemed. And Paul begins by saying, do not lie, because he knows that lying, dishonesty, destructive speech of any kind will undermine the unity of the congregation and perhaps even destroy it. A well-known pastor tells of the time he was preaching a sermon series in the highlands of Scotland, and he met an older lady who said to him, the older I get, the more I love the Lord's people and the less I trust them. Think about that. And sadly, many, many of us know what it, what it is to be hurt by the words of the Lord's own people. That ought never to be, right? But of course... It happens. And the Apostle Paul is saying something here. It seems so simple, but it's also very practical and very profound. He's saying don't lie, because when you do, you will destroy the trust that is necessary for unity of life to be experienced in the local congregation. But, and this is why I said everything I said a few moments ago, but he doesn't just say don't lie and leave it at that. That would be a kind of moralism, right? As I explained before. Rather, he gives them a basis. He gives them a rationale for, the, for his instruction to them. He tells them how it is that they are able not to go on lying. Not to go on lying any longer as they probably once had done, following the trends of their culture, which did not give a great deal of emphasis on truthfulness of speech. He tells them how it is that they could live in a different way. And it's in that little phrase in verses 9 and 10, seeing 
that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. And the, the NASB adds a little emphasis there. Since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, adds the word evil, and have put on the new self. How is it that our previous conduct, our conduct outside of Christ, can change? How is it that we can move from people who have a difficult time controlling our tongues because of the sinfulness implanted in our hearts when we were outside of Christ? Because, Paul says, we have died to the old self and we have put on the new self. And we did that when we came to faith in Christ. That happened when we were uh, raised from spiritual death to spiritual life uh, by the Spirit of God, spiritual life in Christ, and united with him by faith. Because of this renovation that has occurred in our life, because we have been united with Christ, because we have been embraced by the grace of Christ, now we are able to speak in such a way that edifies and encourages one another. Notice again Paul's order of things. He doesn't say, if you will not lie, then you will experience newness of life. He says, because you have experienced newness of life, therefore, do not lie. This is very important. Very important. It is not do and live. It is live and do. Amen? Live and do. It is not do this in order to have a relationship with God. Do this in order to live in fellowship with Christ. Rather, it is because it is because you are in fellowship with Christ. Therefore, do this. Live and do. It is important that we get that right. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, I would rather make bricks without straw than try to obey the Sermon on the Mount in my own strength. In other words, church, our ability to obey is based on what God has done in us and not on our own strength. Christianity is not you know, a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps religion. Christianity recognizes and proclaims that in and of ourselves we are weak. And we are incapable of doing what the Lord wants us to do. But by his grace, we will be transformed into what he intended us to be in the first place. And we must strive in that direction. Paul says that the new nature, the new self, is being renewed in verse 10. Now notice also, this is not something that happened in the past and is no longer happening. He recognizes that our renovation in Christ is an ongoing work. It's not finished. There's a lot more work to be done in us. That sanctification is an ongoing process. And what is its direction? Well, Paul says it's the restoration of the image of God in us. Look at what he says in verse 10. He says our new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. In the garden, man was created in the image of God. By Adam's sin, that image was defaced, and it was damaged, though it was not completely destroyed. And what is God doing in our salvation? He is recreating us as new creations, restored to that 
moral image which he had implanted in us in the first place. And that's one reason why a believer ought to care about holiness, ought to care deeply about holiness, because that image is being, or that image that is being renewed in us consists in our holiness, in our godliness. So the apostle reminds us of this transformation that God has done in us. He says, therefore, don't lie. Don't destroy the unity of the fellowship by using your tongues in a destructive way. And he reminds them again that it doesn't matter what backgrounds they are from in this congregation. They can be Jews or Greeks. They can be slave or free. They can be barbarians or, or even Scythians. I'm not even sure if I'm pronouncing that right. Scythians were the lowest of the low. <laughs> even the barbarians talked bad about the Scythians. That's pretty bad, right? If the barbarians are talking bad about you, I mean, that's pretty low. I mean, they were considered the outcasts. They were the worst people that you could possibly imagine. And the Apostle Paul says, look, if there are Scythians and barbarians in this congregation who are in Christ, then Christ is their Lord, and he is indwelling them, and he is recreating them in the image of God, as surely he is that converted Jew, as surely as he is that, that educated Greek. Paul says, everyone in this congregation who is in Christ is being built up and is being restored in the image of Christ, and therefore we must treat all with impartiality, because God is not treating them with partiality. Amen? This is so important for us to understand. God is doing the same work in all of them, regardless of their education level, regardless of their ethnic background, regardless of any other factor in their background. God is doing a work in them, and therefore we are to treat them with our lips in such a way as to build them up and establish unity in the congregation. And notice, by the way, that Paul makes unity, true unity, dependent upon our personal growth in righteousness. You cannot create unity amongst a people who is not personally renewed in righteousness. How can you create unity amongst people who do not reflect individually the righteous principles implanted by the grace of Christ? You can't. This is why all of the, the man-made attempts that we have seen over the last, I don't know how many years, decades, um, the man-made attempts at a so-called unity are, are uh, they're unbiblical, they're doomed to failure. There is this ecumenism that has gripped so much of the church, and we used to hear it all the time. I don't seem to hear it as much anymore, although I'm sure it's out there. You know, it, it, it really doesn't matter what we believe. It doesn't matter what doctrines divide us. As long as we all worship the same Christ, as long as, not even the same, as long as we all say we worship Christ, that's the basis of our unity. But that's just not true. We have to be worshiping the same Christ, the Christ who has re been revealed to us in the Bible. Amen? See, the thinking among those who want to promote this false man-made unity is that doctrine, truth, divides. So we have to put that out of the way so we can all just come together under the banner of Christ. And there was a time, it was about 20 years ago, a literal banner. There was this movement on Long Island called Jesus Alive. Does anybody remember that? Jesus Alive. And you would drive around and you would see banners, white banners and the name Jesus. And 
all the churches who agreed to be part of Jesus Alive would put this banner outside their church. And you would see it on Catholic churches. You would see it on, you know, mainline apostate Protestant churches, even some misguided evangelical churches. And the whole thing culminated in this big rally at the Nassau Coliseum. Thousands, I mean, they filled it. And any church, any church, there's a problem right there, could participate. And any pastor who wanted to would be given several minutes to speak. And I got my packet in the mail. I didn't ask for it, but it came. And um, if I wanted to participate, I could go and speak. But here, here was the one guideline. The guideline given to all the speakers was simply this. You could be biblical, but not doctrinal. Just think about that. You could be biblical, but not doctrinal. See, once you even say the name Jesus, you're being doctrinal, amen? Because there's a, there's, there's a doctrine, there's a teaching, but who is this Christ? And what has he done? And what does he say about us? So there's, there's this idea that we can put aside truth, the truth that leads to godliness, the truth that leads to righteousness, and all come together under just this, the name Jesus without even defining who he is and what, has he, what he has done. But Paul makes it very clear that unity, true unity, is dependent upon our personal growth in righteousness. And it now... It is true that truth divides, but truth also unites. Biblical truth unites all those who believe it and practice it and embrace it from all those who do not. Amen? So truth unites and it divides. And uh, the unity of the spirit that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4 is a unity based on truth. You can never have true unity not based on truth. Unity is always based on the truth. That Holy Spirit who unites us, first of all, he, he unites us by indwelling all of us and by leading us into the same truth, to know the same truth and to love the same truth and to obey the same truth, right? Uh, to uh, be doers of the same truth and not hearers only. Now, this leads Paul to the second section of the passage. Christians must put on the behavior of the new creation. In verse 12, uh, he tells us to put on something. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Five things. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And here he's instructing these believers to put on the virtues or the characteristics, to put on the behavior of the new creation. Throughout the passage, Paul calls the church a new creation. And as he calls us to live like the new creation, notice again, he doesn't just say do all these things. Do these things and then lists off, you know, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, he gives them a basis. He answers the question, how is it that I can do these things? 
Paul says you can do it because of who you are in Christ. What does he say? Look at verse 12. You are chosen, you are holy, and you are beloved. Chosen, holy, and beloved. He goes back to the electing love of God. And he says, God has set his heart on you. He has chosen you. And because he has chosen you, he has called you to holiness. And he has evidenced his love for you by his choosing of you. Isn't it interesting that Paul applies to this tiny little congregation in in Colossae the same blessings which were given by God to the children of Israel in the Old Testament? They were called God's chosen people. And now Paul is saying to this little ragtag group of Christians in Colossae, you are the chosen people of God. God has chosen you, and he has elected you for holiness of life and for service of his church. And his election of you is proof of his love for you. And because of who you are, because you are the chosen people, therefore I want you to put off the old life, and I want you to put on the new life. I want you to put off the old life, lay it aside, and I want you to put on the new life, the new self. Dress yourself, clothe yourself, bathe yourself, he says, in the reality of what it is to be a new creation. I mean, that's what Paul is saying here. And he speaks of it specifically in verse 12. Five things. Again, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And notice that these really aren't five separate things. These things flow in and out of one another. They're connected to one another. They're like circles, which are interlocked. They are not separate things that have nothing to do with one another. But if you have one principle in you, the others naturally flow. Now, let's look at them briefly. First of all, Paul says, dress yourself, clothe yourself, put on compassion, a heart of compassion. And that compassion refers to that that yearning with deep affection which we saw so frequently evidenced in the life of of Christ himself, right? He comes across the sea, he's tired, he's seeking a place to retreat and to pray. He has good motives. He desires to pray with the Heavenly Father. But he's met on the other side of the sea by a great crowd. Now his disciples, they want him to turn them away, right? But we are told that he felt compassion for them. And in that context, he denies himself, and he feeds the 5,000. What would have happened if the Lord had said, no, I've got to go have my quiet time, right? The compassion of the Lord, the compassion of the Lord is our model. And Paul says, you be that way to one another in the life of the church. Putting aside your own needs and desires when necessary, to minister in love to the needs and the desires of one another. Now notice that kindness is connected to this. It flows out of it. Kindness refers to that goodness of heart that is certainly connected with that yearning of affection, that compassion of which he has previously spoken. He says to you, put on kindness as well. Now, we, we, we tend to think of kindness as the opposite of meanness. You know, if you're mean in your words and you're mean to somebody, or you can be kind. Well, I, I think kindness here 
The opposite of this kind of kindness would be indifference. Indifference to the needs of others. Instead of being indifferent or hardened even to the needs of others, we want, we want to show kindness and do for others what needs to be done. Augustine, the great church father, was not always a saint <laughs> by any stretch. Much of his adult life he spent in behavior, which we would uh, hardly condone. And his friends talked him into going to Rome and then on to Milan to hear one of the greatest orators in the church, a man named Ambrose, who was the bishop in the city of Milan. When Augustine first went, he said that Ambrose's preaching really didn't impress him that much. In fact, he said, if this is the best the church has to offer, the church doesn't have very many good orders. Many very good orders. But, but, and hear this, he also said that Ambrose's kindness to him was such that it overcame his lack of estimation of his preaching ability. And it was Ambrose's kindness to Augustine that led Augustine to listen to his preaching, even after his friends had long gotten bored and gone back to Rome. And, of course, that led to Augustine's conversion to Christ. Kindness, Paul says, is something that you are to put on. Kindness toward all men, certainly, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Humility is the third thing. That spirit of lowliness, which is based on a proper self-understanding. You put on humility. You are characterized by humility, Paul is saying. To be characterized by humility. Cornelius, the centurion, he was a humble man. He said, oh, Peter, I'm not even worthy for you to come to my house. The Syrophoenician woman, the Canaanite woman, she was a humble woman. When the Lord said it is not appropriate to give the dogs the children's food, she didn't respond angrily. She didn't respond, what do you mean? I'm not a dog. You hate her. Today he would have been called a hater, right? I have news for you. God is a hater, by the way. God hates evil. Amen? God hates evil. And there are many other things God hates in the, in the scriptures, but we'll get into that another time. But he would have been called a hater. No, she agreed with his assessment. She said, oh, but Lord, even the dogs eat the scraps from their master's table. That's humility. The publican's humility showed humility when he said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. That type of humility rooted, first of all, in that accurate self-assessment of who we really are outside of Christ, or to characterize our dealings with one another in the life of the church. It's a humility that Paul describes and calls us to in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Philippians 2, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is so hard. And we pay lip service to this, but when we really have to do it, isn't it hard? It's hard. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So in humility, we consider others more important than ourselves, more deserving than ourselves, better than ourselves. And that attitude then works itself out practically, in practical terms, as we care not only about our own interests, our own needs, but the needs of others as well. Meekness, he says, that's the fourth thing. Certainly, again, connected with our humility, 
we're to have a willingness to forego our own rights. A meek man, a meek woman, a meek person is one who does not demand his own way or fight for his rights. Moses was called the meekest man on earth. Now, where do we see that displayed? Well, how often was his leadership challenged, right? Never did he defend himself. Never did he, you know, he never called Korah, Dathan, and Abiram together and said, God made me in charge. You must submit to my authority. First of all, it wasn't his authority, amen? It was God's authority being mediated through him, and he knew that. He simply waited for the Lord to defend him. The Lord really to defend himself. I think it is very significant that only once in the entire New Testament did the Lord Jesus ever describe himself. And what did he say about himself? Matthew 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle, and that word is also translated meek. I am meek and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for yourselves. That's the only time he ever described himself. And he described himself as meek and lowly. We are perhaps never more like Christ than when we emulate his own self-described meekness and lowliness. As Peter reminds us in 1 Peter chapter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And what example is that? He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. To this attitude and expression of meekness, we have been called. And please don't mistake Jesus' display of meekness in the face of suffering and mistreatment as weakness. Jesus, we know, had all the power. But in meekness, his strength remained under God's control. And he remained obedient even unto death. I cannot emphasize enough how important this quality of meekness is to the maintenance of unity in the church and in the home And in every area of life, really, more strife in the home and division in the church can be attributed to those who pridefully demand their own way and who stubbornly cling to their supposed rights than probably anything else. May the Lord help us to truly follow his example of meekness and humility. Amen? Finally, there is patience. Paul says patience, forbearance with wrongs done to you. And you see how all these things are connected, right? Forbearance with wrongs done to you. Again, closely related to meekness and humility. It's that forgiving spirit which reflects God. God himself is slow to anger, the scripture says. In other words, he doesn't condemn us when he could condemn us if he wanted to condemn us. God forbears. He's slow to anger. He gives us time to repent. He doesn't speak a word of rebuke and correction and condemnation every time we sin. Ever wonder how the Gospels would have sounded if Jesus had spoken a word of correction every time his disciples sinned? John, stop that. Peter, that's wrong. Matthew, you're out of line. And it would just go on and on and on. The whole Gospel would be filled with the Lord's rebukes. But the Lord forbear, forbore, (laughs) 
with his disciples. He showed forbearance. And Paul says we are to show forbearance. You know, some people, and I, I mean Christians, they just can't let anything go. Right? We all know people like that. Sometimes we're like that. They bristle at every slight, real or imagined. They hold grudges. Worse than that, they harbor bitterness and unforgiveness and resentment, grieving the Holy Spirit and effectively quenching his work in their lives. In their resentment and bitterness, they sow discord among the brethren. They dishonor the name of the Lord. All the while, though, they want his forgiveness, but refuse to extend that same forgiveness to anybody else. Hear what Paul says in Ephesians 4 about this, verses 29 through 32. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You see the basis of it all? As God in Christ forgave you. In fact, Paul goes on in verse 13 of Colossians 3 to say that we are to forgive. Paul says we are to bear with the offenses and faults of others. And we will when we have put on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Church, these are good things for Christians to meditate upon, to think about. Paul says if you want a life of unity in the, in the congregation, these are the things which are going to have to characterize your dealings with one another. How easy it is to speak of these things in the abstract, but how difficult it can be to be compassionate to a person who hasn't shown you compassion to be forbearing with a person who has not been in the least forbearing or forgiving of your own sins. And so it isn't a mistake, is it? That in verse 13, Paul pulls it together. He specifically says, forbear and forgive one another. You know, it's so encouraging to me that Paul doesn't see this local congregation of, of Colossians, Colossian Christians as, as sort of a, you know, an outpost of heaven on earth, where everyone is perfect. He knows that the only way these people will ever get along with one another, again, these people from all different backgrounds, right? All different experiences. He knows that the only way these people will ever get along with one another is that they are forbearing and they are forgiving and they are kind and they are compassionate and if they're humble and if they're meek and if they're patient because otherwise they would have killed one another. No, figuratively, oh, who knows, maybe literally as well. The Apostle Paul knows that these principles must be in place because there are so many sins and faults in each one of us. Amen? And he calls us to put off the sin and put on the newness of life. And let me say very quickly that Paul's idea of a new self doesn't mean that your personality is evacuated and that you become sort of you know a zombie filled by the Holy Spirit. If anything, your personality and your humanity is heightened as it is restored in the image of God, as you walk in newness of life, as you put off old behavior, old attitudes, old thoughts, and as you live in accordance with the principles, the principle that God has implanted in you, the principle of grace, the principle of the new creation. And that's only found 
my friends, in Christ, by grace, through faith. Only when you've met Christ and you've renounced your own efforts because you see how useless and how sinful they are and you've trusted in Christ and on Christ, only then can you experience the type of strength and power that Paul knows is necessary for a person to live like this. And if you are here today and you haven't come to God through faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for the freedom to live for him, and the promise of everlasting life, please do not leave here today without talking to someone about that. You can see me or or Caleb or Mike or Steve or anyone you've seen up here today. We would love to talk to you about this some more. Uh, Eternity is at stake. Amen? As we close, let me ask you this, and now I'm speaking to Christians, to the church now. Do you want to be like this? Do you want to live like this? As you look at this glorious vision of what it means to be the new creation, do you want to be like that? Do you recognize, well, I'm, 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 I'm not this, but I want to be that. Is your heart drawn to it? If it's not, pray that God would do a work in your heart so that your desires would be to look like what the Lord has said in his word that believers ought to look like. And if you do want to be like this, and yet you sense your weakness, then you're right where God wants you. Amen? For when I am weak, then I can say I am strong. Because it's only when you're reliant upon the work of the Spirit in your life that you're ready to take the steps down the road in being a person of kindness and compassion and humility and patience and meekness. Amen? May the Lord bless his word. Let's pray. Our Lord, we recognize our inability to do what is right apart from the grace of Christ. And so work in us a renewed obedience because of the new creation, because of our union with Christ. Where there is selfishness and hardness of heart, let that give way to compassion where there is indifference to the needs of others, let that give way to kindness. Where there is pride, let that give way to humility. Where there is uh, anger and a a stubborn um, demand to have our own way, let that give way to meekness. And where there is anger and bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness. Let that give way to patience, forbearance, and forgiveness. That your image may be reflected more and more and more in our own lives, in the lives of this congregation, in this church, and we will give you all of the praise and the glory as we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.